We have a playful way of describing ways to prevent this in the uh, La Jolla Shores swimming area is to call it the stingray shuffle. And I love it. Urine, urine always gets thrown in there with marine innovation. <laughs> <laughs> One of the ways to revive a patient from a drowning was to stick a tube up their rear end. I don't think this is a proper strategy. You just drop in, just ride the barrel and get pitted, so pitted like that. Cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. Hey folks, this is Daryl, and for our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast, it's marine medicine time. Our time together first covers a truly interesting journal article on stingray envenomations with our authors, Dr. Taylor Doctor and Christian Coffey, our marine medicine expert. Then we'll discuss some of the latest evidence on the treatment of a drowning victim. So let's go. Our September 2021 journal interview is with two of our authors who looked at optimal imaging modalities for the detection of stingray barbs in the body, specifically in the human foot and ankle. Look for it, read it. It is an original research article titled Comparison of Radiographic Ultrasound and Magnetic Resonance Imaging for the Detection of Retained Stingray Barbs, a Cadaveric Study. And we have two of our authors here with us. Please tell us a little bit about your background. I'm Taylor Doctor. I am uh, currently a second year resident at uh, LA County USC in emergency medicine. I had the pleasure of going to medical school in San Diego at UCSD, where I participated in a study with Dr. Coffey, who was our wonderful wilderness medicine faculty there. Thanks, Taylor. Yes, my name is Christiane Coffey, and I am an emergency physician at UC San Diego. I grew up in South Carolina and spent most of my summers in the Atlantic Ocean, being stung by jellyfish and pinched by crabs, and then moved out to San Diego for my emergency medicine residency at UCSD, and quickly had to learn how to avoid stingray injuries and get used to the cold water. After my residency in emergency medicine, I stayed on to be the first wilderness medicine fellow, and I'm currently the fellowship director and lead our resident rotations and student courses at UCSD. And then within the Wilderness Medical Society, I'm the chair of the Diving and Marine Medicine Committee. I pretty much love all things related to marine medicine, particularly hazardous marine life. And so I'm drawn to research areas like this. Well, it's great to have you both here. And to start off, I believe this study was supported by a Charles Houston grant from the WMS? That's correct. What, what year was that? Oh, gosh. I think it was, it must have been 2019. And, and Taylor is too modest to mention, but she presented <laughs> she presented this research as an oral abstract at the WMS Summer Virtual Conference, and she received the Researcher in Training Award. Wow. Well, great. Well, I can't wait to get into this article. This sounds really fascinating. So congratulations for that, Taylor. And oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So you both mentioned in the article there's obviously several of you, that there can be anywhere from, say, 750 to 2,000 stingray injuries and envenomations yearly in the U.S., even in snorkelers and scuba divers. But you see these nice stingrays floating in the ocean around so nicely. They look so peaceful as they glide in the water. I mean, do they just come up and attack a diver or swimmer? And how can a swimmer avoid a stingray injury in the first place? Sure. So, I am no expert in, in marine life, uh, and I'm not a lifeguard, but my understanding is that these stingrays generally don't tend to attack people if they're uh, not disturbed. Um, and so, yes, you see them swimming around comfortably, and if you don't bother them, they don't usually tend to bother you. Uh, the key is really to just not disturb them to prevent any sort of attack. But accidents do happen, and so oftentimes these are caused when a swimmer or oftentimes a surfer is like walking through the water and doesn't see the stingray and, and steps on it, or someone's jumping off of their surfboard and then they land on it. And if you step on it, then that stingray's defense mechanism will kick in and will whip its tail up, and the barb can, can then hit and injure the swimmer's foot most often. So 
we have a playful way of describing ways to prevent this in the uh, La Jolla Shores swimming area is to call it the stingray shuffle in which you very carefully kind of shuffle your feet along the shallow water to prevent stepping inadvertently on top of a stingray and to kind of give them a warning that somebody's coming so that they can also avoid you. Well, if I read this study correctly, it sounds as if the barbed tail, if you happen to step on one of these animals, they, it'll snap up into, say, a swimmer's heel, and it'll leave parts of a protective sheath in the wound. Then venom is released and the barb breaks off. What are some of the effects or the symptoms of a stingray envenomation? So there are obviously multiple, uh, many different types of stingrays that exist. Um, our experience is predominantly with a round stingray in the Southern California coast. Um, I'm sure that depending on the different types of species, there may be different uh, side effects that people would experience from envenomation. But from the injuries that we evaluate, uh, we really just see predominantly local effects from the wound and from the venom and from any sort of retained barb that may be present. And that mostly just consists of pain at the injury site, maybe some local inflammation, some bleeding, and then some delayed reactions that we might see or just delayed wound healing or sometimes infection if the wound has been open and contaminated and not adequately washed or if there was a retained foreign body that left itself there to be a nidus of infection. Well, hey, why not simply just pull that barb out of the foot? Is there another treatment that we could use on site? Suppose, for instance, if there's no hot water available and would seawater, fresh water, even urine be sufficient? Is that recommended? I love it. Your urine always gets thrown in there with marine innovation. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do it. Uh, yeah, in regard to your first question, whether to pull the barb out or not. Uh, so definitely our lifeguard agencies, their protocol doesn't allow them to pull, pull any type of impelled object out. So a person may decide to pull out a small amount if they can see it, or they may come to the emergency department with it. Um, yes, if you can visibly see it and you're fairly confident it's not in some area with compromising vasculature around, then you can remove it out. But more or less, hot water really is the key. There's not a lot of literature out there on the management of stingray envenomations, but we do know that hot water immersion is the mainstay of treatment. And if you don't have that, I usually tell people to carry with them heat packs in their marine medical kit, because if you don't have hot water, at least applying that heat, it's that temperature that's really key in helping with the envenomation. Seawater, fresh water, I guess it would just be more helpful with irrigation. And for your urine... Guess your urine is the same temperature, it's your body temperature, right? And that's 98.6 degrees, which is not hot enough. Yeah. You can it, try it. Yeah. Aesthetically, it doesn't look. <laughs> no. So I guess if you're on a little board, you're definitely going to have the hot water. But if you're on the beach, that's a really excellent idea. Yeah, heat pack. So, well, the aim of the study was to really compare the usefulness of point-of-care ultrasound, plain x-rays, and MRI to detect retained barbs. It sounds like you used human cadaveric feet, but I'm not sure. Did you stick cadaveric feet on top of angry stingrays? What are the methods? <laughs> so uh, this was actually a really fun project to do. It was one of the more hands-on research projects I was able to do during medical school. And so we actually got to use cadaveric human ankle and foot specimens and basically in the cadaver lab, we're able to use some of the tools there to recreate a stingray injury. We had small stingray barbs that were collected at a local aquarium during their routine trimming. And so we were able to use actual like dried stingray barbs to recreate the injuries. And essentially we identified where we wanted to have different injuries on each of the feet. We chose one ankle, like simulated ankle injury and one simulated foot injury on each of the foot ankle specimens. And that would either be for the ankle injuries, the medial or lateral malleolus and somewhere in the posterior calf. And then for the foot injury simulations, we would either use the medial or lateral arch or the heel of the foot. And so we would just make a small incision with uh, uh, just a scalpel and then extend that briefly with a pair of Kellys and stick a barb subcutaneously into those little open wounds until it's not visible externally. And so we were able to create basically a total of 24 
sample simulated injuries and in a one-to-one -one fashion randomized for the presence or absence of a small uh, retained stingray barb, which was approximately like three millimeters by uh, like maybe 10 to 15 millimeters. And then once we had those samples, we had emergency and radiology physicians perform ultrasounds on each of the specimens and each of the injury sites on those and interpret those images along with x-ray images that were obtained by an x-ray technician and identify whether they felt that there was either a barb present or absent in that injury. MRI scans were also performed by a radiology technician, and those were actually subsequently interpreted by MSK radiology attendings rather than emergency medicine uh, faculty. Well, what are some of the takeaways with regard to the study as far as the results? Ultimately, we ended up having 19 participants. We had 14 emergency medicine trained participants and five radiology, and then had a great distribution of training levels. So we had 47% were residents, 42% were faculty, 11% were fellows. And ultimately, we found that x-ray had the highest sensitivity for identification of the foreign bodies, and then followed by MRI at 83%, and lastly, ultrasound at 70%. And then with regards to specificity, MRI had the highest specificity at 100%, followed by x-ray at 98, and then ultrasound again at 73. So like you mentioned, the key takeaway would be that x-ray had clearly demonstrated the highest sensitivity, um, and again at 94%, MRI highest specificity, but x-ray was, was close behind on the specificity um, at 98. We also found that when comparing between the level of training and the type of training of the people who are identifying the absence or presence of a barb, that there really was no difference on x-ray or ultrasound based on the reviewer's level of training, and that there was no difference based on even the like PGY training year amongst the residents. There was also no difference in accuracy of barb identification on x-ray between the emergency medicine and radiology physicians. And then we also compared the accuracy based on the anatomic location of where that injury was on our, on our simulated injuries and found that the easiest location was the heel and then uh, medial arch was the most challenging when we were looking with x-ray and then the medial and lateral malleoli were the most challenging when imaged with MRI. So that would be another thing to consider when deciding uh, what type of imaging you're going to go for in these patients. Well, it appears that of the three modalities, the ultrasound seemed to have the least sensitivity and specificity and plain x-rays had the highest sensitivity or the find rate for the barbs. MRI, on the other hand, had the highest specificity but is it important, at least clinically speaking, the clinical venue of a likely stingray envenomation to resort to an MRI to tell us that, yes, it is a stingray barb versus, say, cactus spine or some other impalement, sea urchin, whatever you have, or is an x-ray enough and we can stop? It's kind of an odd question, but do we go as far as an MRI? What do we do with the information? So even though MRI is quite accurate, we also know it's really expensive and not time efficient. So we, we wanted to include it in the study because it's traditionally considered to be the gold standard and not missing any stingray barb or in a lot of different organic material that might be retained within the body. But, and interestingly enough, one of the interests of mine or reasons that we decided to pursue doing this study is that there's a lot of varying opinions on whether x-ray is really accurate or not. There's some case reports and other anecdotal information that some people say, no, you really can't see it. It's not radio opaque. And then other case reports that, that say it is, is quite easy to identify. So we thought, yeah, let's include x-ray for sure. And, uh, and then use ultrasound as that's something that tends to be readily available in many different areas. And then including the MRI as the gold standard. Would you recommend using a CT scan? There's doubt. It wasn't specifically studied. Yeah. You know, at least at our institution, we would choose to go for an MRI over an, a CT if a patient's returning with concern for deep space infection and we feel like we need to have more advanced imaging. Even though that scenario is pretty rare, um, we probably would go for an MRI. And to be honest, it all comes down to funding. 
so we were fortunate to receive support from the Academy through the Academy of Wilderness Specimen with the Houston grant to cover cost of the cadaveric specimens and the x-ray imaging. And then we collaborated with the UC San Diego MSK MRI research lab that provided the MRI and interpretation. Let's just say I'm down at La Jolla Cove and Christiane is saying, oh, I'm, you know, too busy. And so here I am alone teaching a medical diving course. Oh, my goodness. And one of our students goes in the shallow water, doesn't do the shuffle methodology. And this person screams, trying to run out of the water. And of course, included my medical kit is a portable ultrasound probe, say a butterfly. And I have some vinegar. Oh, I forgot my heat packs. Rats. Well, I can make hot water as well because I'm the master of improvisation, but how can I tell <laughs> it was from a stingray, don't laugh, a jellyfish, a sea urchin, or something else? And if it was a stingray, what are my next steps? First of all, I think everyone would love it if you were teaching the, the course. Uh, so you, you would be a lot of fun and you'd probably teach it more than I could. But, uh, but yeah, if you're in the, in the Hoya Cove, 99% sure it's going to be a stingray. Someday, in fact, some days, the station in, in La Jolla Shores, our lifeguards are seeing over 30 people for stingray injuries. So it's really common. Wow. Jellyfish is fairly rare, maybe a handful a year, but but definitely, at least in Southern California, jellyfish envenomations are unusual, which is very different than the East Coast or other parts of the world. And we do get some sea urchin injuries time to time, depending on the surf spots that are around. I think the main thing to distinguish them is that a jellyfish envenomation you're not going to have any type of laceration or puncture. It's going to be stinging. It's not going to be hurting like crazy. And there's not really going to be any bleeding. Whereas with a stingray injury, you're going to have a lot of bleeding. And typically those continue to bleed for a while. And then from the puncture standpoint, difference between stingray and sea urchins, a stingray injury is going to be pretty large, whereas the sea urchin puncture wounds are going to be pretty small. Maybe there's a little bit of bleeding, but probably just primarily the pain that's associated with it. And then your other question, what do we do if it's stingray injury? We mentioned it before, it's hot water. Most people will have to keep their foot submerged in hot water for anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour and a half. And we'll often have to frequently replace that hot water. The lifeguards have a protocol of how they approach this with individuals that come to see them. But if they're not around or you're close to your home, you can, a lot of people just go home and, and stick their foot in the shower. And then, in fact, I remember shortly after my husband and I got married, we were out surfing one day and he got stung. So he hobbled home, trying to keep back his tears. I was carrying our boards, and he totally didn't believe me that hot water was going to work. Uh, but as soon as we stuck his foot in a bucket in the shower with hot water, I became the most amazing wife ever. Um, and, then, and then his secondary reaction to that was feeling really embarrassed when he saw how small the little laceration was on his toe and how significant the amount of pain was that he was having. But even really small cuts or puncture wounds can hurt like crazy. They definitely hurt hot water yeah. or hot shower. I've done the same thing in Kona, Hawaii. You know, you get a sea urchin, and fortunately, our bungalow was nearby, so there's nothing like hot water. Well, let's say we can't figure this out. There's no experienced lifeguards, and we decide, yeah, vinegar is a bad idea. It's not a jellyfish. We decide, well, let's go to the local emergency department. What would be any further treatment steps? Say we have a healthy student, but the student becomes mildly hypotensive with a mild amount of bleeding from the heel. How much irrigation, what prophylactic antibiotics, what initial imaging modality would you recommend? And if the barb could be removed, would this individual be admitted to the hospital? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of nuances there and you got to take it case by case. Uh, and definitely there's some differing opinions on approaches and, and standards for practice and, and caring for these injuries. We, I did, we definitely know hot water is important. I would evaluate the wound and make sure you're controlling bleeding. Because as I mentioned, sometimes these injuries, you can just keep on bleeding really significantly. If there's a visible barb, go ahead and remove it. Usually, if you can see it and remove it, you're probably getting it all out in one fell sweep. So it's really just that question, is there a small bit of that barb or the injury sheath that's left in there? And that gets a bit more challenging to distinguish. I do not perform any type of imaging if it's a person that has a fresh envenomation, unless there are signs and symptoms of retained foreign body. So if after I was putting their foot and submerging their foot in the traditional time of hot water, the stinging goes away and it's not resolving 
Or if I'm palpating around the wound and they have that sensation of a foreign body that's still retained, then I would do imaging. But definitely most of the patients that we're seeing are folks that are coming back days to weeks later with concern for an infection. And definitely in those cases, I would recommend doing imaging. And in this case, this study that we perform is practice changing for me because now I'm much more confident that I'm going to see a barb on x-ray. And I know that, sure, it's probably not going to pick up the integumentary sheath, but that's also something that isn't really retrievable whenever we're talking about foreign body removal. So I used to use ultrasound as my second choice. I do my x-ray and then I do an ultrasound just to be confident that there was no organic material left. Now I think I'm going to be depending on my ultrasound to confirm that there's no evidence of a fluid collection there, like not a concern for an associated abscess, or is it just cobblestoning with cellulitis to kind of lead my next steps for treating that injury? Definitely, if someone's got concern for a really deep wound or you're concerned that it's near joint or tendon, you may want to consider imaging. You're probably going to be considering antibiotics in those cases. Uh, And you ask also about who gets prophylactic antibiotics. Some providers say everyone should get prophylactic antibiotics, at least in our experience here in San Diego and some upcoming studies that we're doing. We're trying to really clarify this this question to, to prophylax or not. But We usually recommend for people that are immunocompromised, if they've got diabetes or are are at risk for poor wound healing, if they have underlying liver disease, it's going to set them up for potential life-threatening infections with Vibrio, then definitely cover them with antibiotics. And that would be Bactrim, Cipro, Doxycycline are usually our three main go-tos. Those are great points. Are there any other points either of you would wish to bring up? One thing I will just mention is that this study has increased our knowledge and understanding about what imaging options are good for the identification of retained barbs, or at least round stingray species that we see commonly here in Southern California. I think this study increases our understanding of what imaging options are good for identifying retained barbs, at least in the round stingray species, but it still doesn't answer who gets imaging and who receives prophylactic antibiotics. I and mean, we did publish a pilot study back in 2018 that suggested there's a fairly low incidence of infection, but we're looking to, to better clarify that. And we actually just launched a statewide study to follow individuals up to a month after their injury and get a better sense of just how common these sequelae are. So I think that's more interesting uh, research coming down the pipeline and, and hope that this will inspire the people to get excited about stingrays and, and research in this area. This is fascinating. Yeah, this is so great. It's so good to hear about this and all the things that you've done with the study. And folks, it's still summer. People are going out to the beaches and droves in California, Hawaii, and Florida, among other places, assuming the pandemic doesn't shut things down again. And I encourage all of you to read this unique article, to look at the graphs, as well as the ultrasound, the x-ray, and MRI images. And above all, don't step on that nice stingray. Thank you both for your time and allowing us to hear about this fascinating paper. Thank Thank you for for having having us. us. Thank you. It's time to harp. The end of summer is coming, but the temperatures are still high in many parts. People are flocking to the waterways to keep cool, be it a pool, lake, river, or ocean, and rafting, paddleboarding, kayaking, surfing, diving, or just swimming, you name it. But one wilderness emergency that hasn't been addressed lately on our podcast is that of drowning. A significant health problem, especially in the developing world, but also in the first world. Not too long ago, a huge flood raged in El Paso, Texas, not far from us in Albuquerque. The death toll in a flood in Turkey hit 57 just this past mid-August. And torrential deadly rains flooded Zhengzhou, China, in mid-July, with grisly videos out on the internet. The tragic story of China was that, well, many drowned even in a subway. First, Let's talk about some terms. Drowning is usually synonymous with death in the minds of many, but we're gonna examine some current literature, and this whole talk is derived from that, from some guidelines put out by the Wilderness Medical Society, as well as the 2021 guidelines from the European Resuscitation Council. Uh, Gentlemen, a prayer silence for the president of the Royal Society for putting things on top of other things. (laughs) 
and we'll also refer to some items from a talk Dr. Justin Simsrott gave earlier this year, I believe, on drowning. So interestingly, about 90% of deaths are from low to middle income countries, according to Simsrott. So if any of you are international humanitarian workers or you're just water enthusiasts, listen up. And you mountain people who ski, don't bug out of this discussion. There are many similarities between drowning and avalanche burials. Both induce a state of asphyxia resulting in hypoxia to the brain. So to start, let's do a wipeout. Let's wipe out the definition of near drowning, which implies near death. Drowning was redefined at a 2002 drowning conference that took place among august experts in that they define drowning as a process, not an outcome. Survival or death is an outcome. CHF or paralysis is an outcome. Case in point, a myocardial infarction is a process. We try to reverse or minimize that outcome that otherwise could lead to heart failure or even death. Stroke is a process that can lead to paralysis or another disability. In my field, we hope to mitigate or reverse these causes. Am I or stroke? Maybe with thrombolytics or in the case of stroke, treating an elbow. And you can look that one up on your own. So drowning is a process of progressive hypoxia to the brain. What stops brain hypoxia is oxygen. What stops drowning is oxygen. So the terms near drowning, wet drowning, dry drowning, or delayed or secondary drowning are nonsensical. You can refer to our society's 2019 guidelines and its references for more info. You see a person out of the ocean. That person is maybe looking towards the shore. They're struggling to keep the mouth above water as you look out towards that individual. The person seems to be in a vertical position. They're not floating. They're not really dog paddling. Maybe the hands are barely raised. Then suddenly you don't see them. They weren't flailing. Well, I was on a lake near Chamonix, France a few years ago, relaxing at a lakeside after a good 20 kilometer run in the mountains. And this is what I actually saw. There was a lady, just like what I described, happening in the ocean, not really flailing. This is a lake. For a moment I thought, wow, this scenario seemed odd. It was kind of surreal. And often drowning victims don't cry out. They don't look to be in distress. They oftentimes don't even seem to have a lot going on. And then I stood up thinking, yeah, maybe I'll go out there and then splash. The lifeguards were in the water. These guys covered 30 meters quite rapidly, and before we knew it, she was on shore, limp without much breathing effort. Another lifeguard brings out a BVM with oxygen. I put it on her, I give her some breaths, and as I instructed a bystander to feel for a pulse, I started giving four to five breaths. She started to cough, she gagged, then she started vomiting, so we put her on her side, and then she proceeded to wipe her mouth, being fully awake. She had a good radial pulse, but she had some morales on her left lung base as I initially put my ear to her back, which was soon confirmed with a stethoscope in the lifeguard's first aid kit. Oxygen saturations were normal for the altitude, but her respirations were a little labor. We kept her on a nasal cannula. Now she had a history of asthma, but she wasn't wheezing. Within minutes, the ambulance came, and I advised her to go to the hospital. Was I right in doing this? There's a drowning chain of survival found in the ERC, or the European Resuscitation Council Guidelines of 2021, that emphasizes first prevention. But if the drowning event happens, one must first recognize the distress and call for help, provide a flotation or other rescue device, and remove the person from water. Don't plunge into water unless it's safe to do so. Now there's many documented cases where a rescuer attempts to bring a distressed victim to safety only to drown, resulting in two instead of one victim. So only trained personnel should really affect water removal without additional resources such as a flotation device. Extenuating circumstances could change your mind, but it doesn't remove the risk. Using an implement such as a paddle or throwing out a flotation device attached by a floating rope is a lot safer. And then lastly, first aid is rendered. Now there's a Dr. Spillman S-Z-P-I-L-M-A-N. He's actually written a good amount of articles related to the subject. And he devised a useful scale 
that is seen in Table 1 of the WMS Clinical Guidelines, and it's also elsewhere in the literature. Now, this table can actually help with the disposition decisions for an out-of-hospital event, to take to the hospital or not, and to evacuate or not. Let's examine the grades 1 to 6. Now, granted, it hasn't actually been prospectively evaluated, but it's what we have. Grade 1. A grade 1 is a minimally asymptomatic person. Maybe the person sputters when they come out of the water, similar to when somebody gags momentarily after swallowing a beverage, their beer at the dinner table or the lunch table, a little gagging, some coughing, then everything's back to normal very soon. Just like as somebody swallowed something inappropriately as they were talking or laughing during lunch. The symptoms go away, and if you examine this individual, if they'll let you, the lungs are clear and the radial pulses are normal. This is a zero mortality event. You can go ahead and watch these people for a few hours. Nobody really knows how long, maybe three to six hours, and then you carry on. Don't evacuate or transport. Again, this is a grade one incident without the cough and with clear lung sounds, and of course, a normal pulse. Grade two. Now the next grade, grade two, is a bit more interesting. They might have rowels or even a bit of froth from the airway, usually a clear foam, because there is a bit of water, not a whole lot, just a little water, but it was enough to disrupt lung surfactant. They might not look sick. They might even have really a well-looking appearance. They have a normal pulse, but they will do well with some supplemental oxygen and a hospital evaluation for observation, but they're controlling their airway really good. The mortality is still low at less than 1%. It's supposedly 0.6%. Now, the lady I treated at the lakeside was in this category, grade two, although she didn't really froth, but she ended up doing well after a long period of observation at the local hospital and went home several hours later. Grade three. Now, maybe there's more than a small amount of foam. Acute, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, you'd say, but there's good pulses, a lot of rowels. This is definitely a ride to the hospital with just over a 5% death rate. There may be some desaturations as well. This is a grade three type of incident. Oxygen, maybe non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, CPAP or BiPAP can also be given as needed. Grade four. Now, look, this is where things get a little dicey. You got a patient presenting like a grade three, but maybe the pulse is weak and thready, meaning outright hypotension. The foam is just spewing out. They may have an altered sensorium. Maybe they don't. This is a grade four incident. They might end up in an ICU or carefully monitored bed with potential ICU transfer capabilities, and the mortality is about 20%. Now, if they're awake enough, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation might be the way to go. Maybe they need something more invasive. It depends. So let's review. Grade one versus two is differentiated by the presence of rouse or frothing at the mouth. Grade three versus four is differentiated by hypotension in grade four, that thready weak pulse. Now the next grades are even more worser. Grade five. A grade five is someone in respiratory arrest and is hypotensive. A supraglottic airway may be needed, but a more invasive endotracheal intubation is probably better for delivering positive pressure ventilation. And a non-invasive strategy or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation mask is probably going to be contraindicated if the patient is unconscious and obtended. Make sure this patient has a pulse or blood pressure to call it a grade 5. This has a 44% mortality, but no pulse, no blood pressure. This means CPR. This is a grade 6 patient. Grade 6. About a 93% mortality rate. Now, what do you do if you don't have a BVM? You're the first responder. You don't have other adjunct devices. Well, first, listen to this. Drowning is not a CAB, a cab problem. About a couple of months ago, I picked a guy up in my cab, and he said he was from France, right? And he said, I got to get something off my chest. But rather an ABC approach. The American Heart Association has emphasized a chest compression-only resuscitation strategy, which isn't a good idea in cardiac arrest, resulting from hypoxic asphyxia. Furthermore, the AHA guidelines, which are not so up to date on the subject of drowning at this writing, is also way too brief. Well, they currently tend to promote two ventilations, but I don't think this is a proper strategy. Now, if you go to the ERC guidelines of this year, they recommend a five rescue 
breath strategy. This is the same recommendation found in the current up-to-date avalanche resuscitation literature coming out because avalanche burial is similar to drowning in that both are mechanisms of asphyxia leading to hypoxia. So what do you do immediately on scene if you're a parent or whoever? Mouth-to-mouth -mouth respirations if you don't have a bag valve mask and oxygen or some sort of a barrier device. Now, let's take the CAB, the cab approach, or the compression-only idea. Circulation to the brain, absolutely. The AHA guidelines tend to emphasize an older, sicker population of patients with comorbidities. Therefore, a primary cardiac cause might be responsible for a cardiac arrest. So, chest compressions and shocks, perhaps from an AED are emphasized, but in drownings, small children are usually the victims. Healthy adolescents and adults, they are also at risk. Now, of course, you can have the older person who might have had a concomitant cardiac event causing the drowning, but most of these patients are not gonna be in that category. So, if you're giving chest compressions only, the partial pressure of oxygen is diminishing rapidly from its normal 20 1%. So if your chest compressions are giving, say, 20, 21% of normal cardiac output, and you're still not giving oxygen, the oxygen ends up going to zero in the blood. So what is 20% of zero or 20 divided by zero? Well, let's see what Siri has to say about this one. Imagine that you have zero cookies and you split them evenly among zero friends. How many cookies does each person get? See, it doesn't make sense. And Cookie Monster is sad that there are no cookies. And your friends are sad because they don't exist. Oh wow, this escalated quickly. So getting five rescue breaths, even if the oxygen that you're giving is maybe less than the 21% in air, it's better than zero. So a pocket mask is fine if you have it on your person. If you don't, and you do not give mouth to mouth or something else properly and quickly, the patient could die you'll have to take this risk benefit into account. Now, certainly there's gonna be ways you could improvise a barrier device, but we won't discuss those here. Now, provided you have a healthy intact mouth, intact mucous membranes, the incidence of a communicable disease such as HIV or even hep C is very small. Now, concerning COVID, there's no data. I just hope you're immunized, but look, there is some danger with COVID. It's probably not likely that you're carrying a HEPA filter with you, but it might not be a bad idea in your marine medical kit from now on. Now, suppose there's a person out in the ocean who's unconscious after a surfing accident. Do you feel good enough to extricate that patient because you had training? Well, if they're unconscious, you're probably okay. Well, how good is giving mouth to mouth to an individual in the water, what we call in-water resuscitation? Well, it can be very effective provided that you're trained. Untrained providers of in-water resuscitation, however, don't really do a good job considering that the provider and the patient could aspirate more water. Doing chest compressions in the water? Forget about it. Even on a surfboard, effective CPR is very difficult to do. Keep in mind that there's going to be a lot of foam coming out of the mouth. And according to experts, it's usually futile to try to clear the foam. And of course, we're assuming that now you're off onto the shore, onto the beach. Now, on the other hand, patients will vomit 90% of the time, maybe more, who knows? Because initially, during that drowning process, patients aspirate a large amount of water. So you might have to turn that individual on the side during the resuscitation. Now, doing the Heimlich maneuver before, it could possibly expel some of that water. But then again, you're delaying oxygenation. And the Heimlich maneuver itself does not provide oxygenation. In the old days, well, it was thought that people could be hung from their feet upside down. A large gush of water would come out of the mouth, and that's all they did. Other techniques, such as putting a person in a prone position, maybe with a thorax over a round object, a log, sandbar, rock, or on the back of a horse, and then maybe lifting the arms over the head, something called the Sylvester technique, is similarly useless. But you might still see this being done in other countries. Here is an interesting tidbit. In the 1700s, one of the ways to revive a patient from a drowning was to stick a tube up their rear end, while somebody, it better be a good friend or somebody like that, would proceed to blow tobacco smoke up the rectum. There are case reports of this actually working. 
Of course, it doesn't really work because it doesn't address the pathophysiology of drowning and it just downright looks wrong. I wonder how many of those people doing that in Europe tasted cholera-laden intestinal excrement. This is simply not a pretty image. Of course, there's other factors affecting survival. In non-freezing water, evidence points to a poor prognosis if a submersion time exceeds 30 minutes. This may be the case for frozen water, although there are case reports of survival with good neurologic outcome in children less than six years of age in water that was less than six degrees Celsius. In such cases, some have considered a 60-minute mark of submersion for successful versus futile resuscitation. This is similar to for avalanche burials where asphyxia lasts for over 30 minutes and that will have a poor prognosis providing that the patient is greater than a core temperature of 30 degrees C. We're not going to be able to discuss much of that here, but efforts might also be discontinued after 25 to 30 minutes of continuous CPR or maybe earlier if there's a grave danger posed to rescuers. Keep in mind that the chances for a poor neurological outcome is increased with prolonged resuscitation. Let's go back to the example of the surfer. Dude, you got the best barrels ever, dude. Person's unconscious. If you have a kid in the pool, why not put on a cervical collar? In most cases, spinal protection or C-spine immobilization doesn't make sense. You just drop in, just ride the barrel and get pitted, so pitted like that. There may be exceptions such as somebody free diving from a large cliff who may have sustained an axial cervical spine fracture, or maybe the surfer who got tumbled on the bottom with an evident head injury, and I'm not saying that's what happened to this surfer. These are so-called stick-in-the-mud types of injuries, but a kid floating in a pool, probably not. Most surroundings do not require cervical immobilization or spinal protection. So you might be worried that the surfer will have some strange electrolyte abnormalities or poor outcome with regard to lung pathology. After all, the person was in salt water, right? So does fresh versus salt water really matter? And should this person, once in the hospital, receive prophylactic antibiotics as well as steroids? Well, there's some old dog studies where dogs were given up to 44 milliliters per kilogram of fresher saline water through an endotracheal tube. They just poured it down these poor guys' lungs. And it ends up that there wasn't much difference, but maybe some, with regard to electrolyte abnormalities or decreased hematocrits. Not terribly significant. Now, based on observational studies in humans, the amount of water aspirated is about 1 to 2 milliliter per kilogram or even less. So the idea of wet drownings where the lungs are flooded with water doesn't really exist. The idea of dry drowning is also a bit odd. If a person's actually and actively drowning, they may have aspirated a certain amount of water. Sure, after what's called the breaking point where that person absolutely had to breathe. The person swallows a large amount of water before such an event, which is the reason for the large amount of vomit because of gastric distension. However, at this time, it appears that laryngospasm occurs. Old autopsy reports might conclude that such a person suffered a dry drowning. Okay, look, at some time, there may be some water aspirated into the lungs, but not enough for completely engorging and soaking those lungs with dripping water, as would be the case of a so-called wet drowning or filling a person's airway with water through an endotracheal tube, much like those dogs. Sorry, folks, that just ain't going to happen. With a one milliliter per kilo of water aspirated, it might not be enough for what you'd call a wet drowning, which is a laboratory phenomenon for the most part, but it certainly is enough to disrupt that surfactant, which could worsen the degree of hypoxemia. You just need one milliliter per kilo of fluid, and that is enough to disrupt that surfactant. So let's say you have a patient who's coughing after a water rescue. The oxygen saturation's in the mid to high 90s with some rouse. The respiratory rate, a little faster than normal. Some respiratory distress. The pulse is good. The patient's expectorating some nice white foam, but is controlling the airway quite well. This is a grade two patient. You don't routinely immobilize the cervical spine because the patient's otherwise amenable to a proper examination. Now, the patient appropriately goes to the hospital for a period of observation, and on arrival to the emergency department, the patient has an x-ray. That's unremarkable. But the treating physician thinks, hmm, maybe we should give antibiotics anyways. Well, there's no good rule or any evidence, for that matter, that prophylactic antibiotics with a normal x-ray does anything to outcome. So don't do it. 
Additionally, there's no need for steroids. The room air sea level oxygen saturation a little later goes down to about 90%, which is abnormal for the individual. A few liters of oxygen brings that oxygen saturation up to normal. But let's say the patient's admitted and maybe 12 hours later or so, the patient starts to develop worsening frothy sputum and a repeat x-ray demonstrates early pulmonary edema, but patient's getting worse. And let's see that patient is ultimately placed on non-invasive pressure ventilation, much like a CHF person or somebody with high altitude pulmonary edema. Now the most trusted news source, CNN, later reports this to be secondary or delayed drowning. Yet the person is receiving oxygen. So the drowning was already arrested. But the after effects or the sequela, that is to say the pulmonary injury, continued to evolve. So the idea of a secondary or delayed drowning doesn't really exist either. Sorry. The idea of a person coming up out of the water completely normal, a grade one or even a grade zero patient who then later goes on to die from some cardiopulmonary complication a day later from drowning after having had a drowning experience a day before is not really from drowning. Now, case reports go on to show that the small children who die later died from aggravation of an underlying cause already there, a myocarditis or other structural abnormality. Now, as we like to say, follow the science, folks. Delayed drowning no existe, amigos. Well, I think that what he was trying to say is that delayed or secondary drowning doesn't really exist. Now, with regard to laboratory parameters that might be affected by salt water versus fresh water, this probably only makes a difference if the person had a drowning event in the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake. Now, it's conceivable that such an individual would then sustain some degree of hypernatremia, but for most of the routine cases, you're not going to see a change in sodium from the drowning incident itself. As an aside, the ERC guidelines discuss the potential rule of extracorporeal life support in severe drowning cases, and unfortunately, the AHA guidelines obviate this option entirely. In certain circumstances, avalanche victims might be able to go to ECMO, but we won't be able to get into this either because we are running out of time, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. So remember that drowning is not the outcome, and it is not synonymous with death. It simply means that there is a fatal drowning and then a non-fatal drowning, two categories. And then non-fatal drowning has one of two outcomes, one of which is permanent sequela, such as neurologic damage, anoxic brain injury, or no sequela. The A in airway takes precedence. In other words, do your ABCs, don't call a cab, meaning don't do CAB. No. Give oxygen to stop the process of drowning. Your marine medicine kit should focus on having a pocket mask or bag valve mask as needed as well as oxygen if possible. Now, most scuba diving medical kits on board will have these, hopefully. The first 10 minutes of resuscitation drowning is the most important. It is not the paramedics in the ambulance, and it is not the hospital that is going to successfully stop or arrest this drowning process. The first responder you is key. The role of hyperbaric oxygen is going to also be a moot point unless you're worried about some decompression illness, but it doesn't do anything for a drowning reversal immediately. It's those first 10 minutes. Now, as an aside, scuba divers can also drown. If you're interested, we can discuss scuba-related problems in our next podcast. Eliminate from your vocabulary wet drowning, dry drowning, Active drowning, passive drowning, secondary drowning, near drowning, blah, 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 blah. Fresh or salt water generally doesn't really matter. Now, certainly swimming in a cesspool would matter, but we're not going to get into that. And of course, don't blow smoke up somebody's rear end with a hose, especially if you don't know them. Holding somebody upside down or doing a Heimlich maneuver has no place in the resuscitation of a drowning victim. You have to get oxygen to the brain. Now, Remember that drowning is a brain problem with lung complications. So there may be sequela later, but you have to focus on getting oxygen to the brain. Embrace the froth. And after five rescue breaths, or maybe a little more, re-evaluate the patient. Have somebody check for a radial pulse. If things are going south, don't be afraid of initiating compressions and doing the standard 
30 to 2 compression to breath CPR sequences. Defibrillator pads? Oh yeah, sure, why not? Well, usually patients will not experience a ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation since most peer drowning incidences start with a sinus tach, then they go on to pulseless electrical activity, which then usually leads to asystole. However, it's probably not a bad idea to use an AED or something more. Make sure that you're not touching that instrument as a wet, sopping rescuer. But AEDs are generally safe even in the marine environment. Just be careful. Consider that table that I previously discussed with you to make that triage or evaluation decision. Again, it was a retrospective study done mainly by lifeguards in Brazil with over 42,000 cases, but it's shown to be pretty useful. And en route to the hospital or once in the hospital environment, you as an astute wilderness medicine clinician might consider other potential causes for the incident. Maybe it wasn't a primary drowning. Maybe the individual has a history of Brugada syndrome, a long QT syndrome, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, myocarditis, or some other structural or arrhythmogenic cardiac cause. Don't forget, please, other potential causes such as trauma, overdose, alcohol ingestion, decompression illness if applicable, or an arterial gas embolism, or even a severe envenomation or marine bite. If the patient is a diabetic, consider a diabetic emergency. Now look, in this day and age, we have to consider, unfortunately, non-accidental trauma. If you actually want to get an overall idea of what a drowning rescue might look like, you can critique these easily thanks to YouTube. During our wilderness medicine rotation, one of the scenarios we actually show on video is a drowning scenario that we obtained from the Australian series called Bondi Beach. It was an excellent way for the students and the residents to be able to critique beachside resuscitations and to learn from them and to see some interesting cases. So folks, I leave it up to you. Have a safe rest of your summer. And if any of you are going to ASEP 21 in Boston, look me up. I will deliver this presentation and I will also be teaching an urban survival zombie apocalypse workshop. Otherwise, adios. Thank you for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2019. Be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be educated, be safe, be upright, and let us know if you have any ideas for future podcasts. Ciao.